0: Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church, Owasso. Sermon podcast. Grace changes everything. In verse 31, we find Nehemiah returning to personally narrate the story that's contained in the book of his name. We hear his voice again for the first time since chapter uh, 7, verse 5. And what's so interesting about the way Nehemiah begins to retell this story is that you can tell when you read the Hebrew that he is excited. Because the phrase in verse, first I think it appears in verse 31, and then it appears again in 38 and verse 40. The choirs that gave thanks. Now there's various ways to say that in Hebrew. There are two words for to give thanks in Hebrew, yada, which means to confess or to witness or to give thanks, and barach, which means to bless. But Nehemiah doesn't use either of those words in describing these choirs. He uses one word, todot, as if to say, these people were living embodiments of thanksgiving. It doesn't say in Hebrew that the choirs who gave thanks. It says the thanksgiving ones. It says the ones who embodied thanksgiving with their voice. It's interesting that that as Nehemiah is telling the story, it's like he just can't wait to tell the story. Like the embodiment of thanksgiving. They were there. Derek Kidner in his commentary on, on Nehemiah says, it's as though Nehemiah is searching For how he can communicate the fact that these singers didn't just sing with their mouth, but they embodied the topic about which they sang. They were literally embodiments of gratitude. So, one of the first things that we learn in looking at this passage of how we can experience this deep joy that can be heard far away is number one, we embody thanksgiving. Nehemiah's main point that we take as believers, this side of the cross, looking back upon this passage, is that we are called to let our joy be heard far away. We are to let it be heard far away. And the way that you do that, number one, is by embodying thanksgiving. The city was now complete in ancient Israel. Their ancient home was restored. Commerce could commence. We have a wall that protects us from the bad guys outside where we can now raise our children in the traditions of our fathers and in the promises that he has given to Abraham and to Moses and to David and that we can now, for the first time in five generations, we can now raise our children back in the land in a way that gives honor to the one true God. And they celebrated. And if that's true for ancient Israel and the post-exilic community, how much more is it true for us today? Amen? For Nehemiah, Jerusalem was once in ruins, and it was made whole again. But for us, that restoration mirrors for us the work of Jesus, who came to restore and renew all things, not just a city, but through us, the entire world, beginning in our hearts. And in Jesus, we catch a glimpse of this future restoration where God's presence will fully and securely dwell with his people. We have even more reason to celebrate. Nehemiah oversaw the physical rebuilding of the wall. Now we get to sing that Jesus oversees the rebuilding of our entire lives. He brings healing and wholeness to our brokenness. We are sinners who are set free from bondage. Nehemiah sang over the redemption of a people back to a physical land. But through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we get to sing because rather than a wall going up, the walls crash down on Jesus Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, that literally Jesus brought down the dividing wall of hostility that Jew and Gentile might be able to worship together, that we might be a one, one people singing of our glory and our gratitude and our thankfulness, turning all of our glory to reflect his glory and trading our dwarfed goals and our mundane dreams for something far bigger because Jesus was the one who rebuilds our lives, who restores us. You could keep reading in the passage and you reflect more and more on how Jesus fulfills this. It's it's shot through with thanksgiving and worship. And we get to celebrate not that some pagan king allowed us to go back to our homeland to rebuild a city and a wall, but we get to praise God that our eternal king sent Jesus to be our high priest who intercedes for us even this very moment, this very moment as you hear my words, Jesus is interceding on your behalf for you because the walls came crashing down upon him of our disobedience and the curse of the covenant that we broke and deserve, he took upon himself. And this celebration wasn't just part of the regular rhythm of thanksgiving for the ancient Israelites. God designed ancient Israel to build in regular times of celebration to help them embody this thanksgiving. In the seventh month, they celebrated the Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Shavat, the Feast of the Tabernacles or Sukkot, the Feast of Temple of, of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. They partied like hobbits before the world even knew of them. Building into the regular rhythm of their life, times of intentional celebration. And we as a nation get to do that this week, don't we? We build in an intentional week, a time on Thursday. We celebrate the gratitude we have for living in this land. And this dedication is significant because it breaks the bounds of any of the scheduled feasts, when they finished the walls of the temple, they said, get the singers. Go to the villages outside where the singers had built villages where they lived. Go get the singers and bring them in. We're going to have a party. And so one choir who embodied Thanksgiving goes to the south, and they follow Hoshiah. And then one choir that embodies Thanksgiving goes to the north, and they follow Nehemiah, and they literally encircle. They encircle the city, and they give praise to him, embodying Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Now, one of the interesting things about the way that they do this is that notice That when they pull these singers, these singers existed for other purposes. They existed for the feast days. They existed for worship. They existed to fulfill the law that David and Solomon set them up for way back during their reign. David in 1 Chronicles 25 and Solomon in 2 Chronicles 5 says appoint Asaph, appoint descendants of Asaph to be the singers, the professional musicians for the nation of Israel to be able to worship and to lead their people to embody gratitude. But they go beyond that. And they say, bring him in. Which reminds us that if we are going to learn how to have this kind of deep joy, we have to, I'm going to use a new word, I don't know if it, here it is. We have to intentionalize liturgies into our family, into our life, into our church. Intentionalize. To intentionalize means that we, with our own bodies, physical bodies, act, practice, do, behave in such a way that we internalize deep truths through the physical manifestations of certain acts. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith has a theory that says that we are liturgical animals. Interesting way to describe liturgy, isn't it? We embody, reflect, and become, for Smith, not what we think, but what we love. And what shapes our loves are the liturgies of our lives. And so if you are to institutionalize or intentionalize your liturgies, you have to recognize that your routines, your practices, your habits actually either shape you more and more into the image of Christ, or they will intentionally deform you from that image. One of you told me a story about uh, an Afghan refugee who lived in Dallas who uh, was a Christian and couldn't wait to come to America. And as he listened to the Christians in the, in the Dallas suburb where he lived, he, he told the sponsor or the family that was helping him transition to the States, he said, I want to go to the, to the largest church in the area. I hear all about it. And so the family took him to the church. And he says, no, 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 that's not it. And so they drove them to another church. And he goes, no, 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 that's not it. He said, no, this place people really talk about. They love it. They love it these christians and so they took him to the next church and they couldn't find it and he goes no no the church is blue and yellow and so driving by ikea he says that's it because he had heard from christians in that suburb their excitement about their regularly going to ikea and getting things overshadowed their excitement about going to the physical church on sunday and that illustration is just so simple to share with us that there are liturgies of our lives that shape and mold us. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with Ikea, but when anything that's a good thing becomes something that you rejoice over more than the gospel, it is either conforming you or deforming you from his image. It could be the rituals with which you... Uh, go to the office or you shop on Black Friday this week or you go to the stadium or the university or to your school. These are liturgical structures that work to change your affections and your desires ever so slowly. Smith writes, in short, liturgies make us certain kinds of people and what defines us is what we love and liturgies aim our love to to different ends, precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. They prime us to approach the world in a certain way, to value certain things, to aim for certain goals, to pursue certain dreams, to work together on certain projects. Liturgies constitute a pedagogy, a way of teaching us all sorts of things that precognitively, even before we're aware that we're thinking them, set us upon certain paths to deeply believe, now, one of the ways that I see this uh, today as a pastor is I look at the seminaries, when I was going through seminary, and they were packed. And now, do you know what I hear most of all? I hear, I hear young men, some young men, who are thinking about seminary, but they trade it in for law school because they hear the resounding voice of their parents saying, we love you, son, we want you to flourish, and we don't want you to be in poverty your whole life. We think you might have a gift, but go to law school. Don't go to ministry. Why? Because they subtly teach that it is financial security that is what makes you most secure in this life. And friends, that is a lie. But it is a liturgy all its own. So how, if you were to define liturgies, what might be a definition of liturgies? It is the embodiment or the embodied, repeated, rituals, and practices that shape our fundamental loves. The embodied repeated rituals or practices that shape our fundamental loves. If you look at verses 44 through 47, it's interesting. This is a historical aside. You know, your English teachers teach you about historical asides. This is where Nehemiah backs off of the story, and he says, this is what's currently going on in the nation. That Years ago, David and Solomon appointed singers to always set their tents around the city so that at any point in time they could be ready, just like we have men in the military who watch in Houston to guard our borders. So the singers were ready at any time to be called to lead people into joy and to celebration. They built in the liturgy of singing into their culture so that at any moment they could throw a party and they could sing. And one of the practical ways that we embody this kind of gratitude and that we we intentionalize our liturgy in this church especially is that we sing loud just like they did in ancient Israel. We sing loud. Ever since Miriam, after Israel crossed the Red Sea, when Miriam, remember she had instruments that they had taken from Egypt to cross on dry land, and Miriam's song burst forth in Exodus chapter 15, the first use of instruments we see in Scripture. Ever since Miriam's song in Exodus 15, God's people have been people who sing. And one scholar of Christian liturgy, uh, liturgy, Hughes Oliphant Old, says that singing is, in a special way, the spiritual fire that joins our hearts together in a single flame. Aw, isn't that pretty? When you sing, your hearts join together in the same spiritual flame. I'll never forget that the memories I have of my father. The only time I ever heard him singing was in church. I can still hear his voice. My grandfather, who has since passed away, I can still hear his voice. And it is his singing voice, more than his speaking voice, that I have treasured in my heart. Beautiful as it was. When my children sit next to me, beautiful is not what they think about when they hear Dad's voice singing, but loud it might be. And it is not the quality of your singing, but it is the volume of our singing together that we want to commend as a church, that we want our singing to be loud, not because we're performing, it's because we are trying to embody gratitude, and we are trying to intentionalize our practice as God's people. Adam and the the musicians up here, as they lead us, they're not performers. They're leading us together to worship the Lord, and so we, just like ancient Israel, are to prioritize singing loud, leaning, leaning into it. And singing is not like the appetizer before this, the main meal, because the sermon is not the main meal. In Christian worship, the main meal is actually the meal, the Lord's table, where we sing and we embody gratitude, and then we come to the Eucharist, the meal of thanksgiving, as people who have intentionalized our liturgies to make much of Jesus' together. Martin Luther said that next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It was said of Luther that he sung as many sermons as he spoke. And you know the power of song in your own life. I mean, just go to a Taylor Swift concert. Think about the fact that after every national tragedy, after 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the Newtown shooting in 2012, the Boston Marathon in 2013, the National Cathedral opened her doors, and the service was packed for people to sing their grief. When, uh, when 9-11 happened, and the Yankees played the Boston Red Sox, you may remember this, You know, the Boston Red Sox, of course, their theme song as a baseball franchise is Sweet Caroline. They sing it every game. And when the seventh inning stretch came, when the Yankees came to town after 9-11, the whole stadium sang New York, New York. And the whole crowd just swelled together to sing in solidarity and sing the grief of what experienced at 9-11. And in 2013, 12 years later, when the Boston Red Sox, the very next game after the Boston Marathon, happened to go to Yankee Stadium, the seventh inning stretch came, and what did they sing? Sweet Caroline. da And the whole crowd just erupted as they sang their grief together. When we sing, children, when we sing, it is not, it is not the appetizer. What we sing shapes our hearts. It molds us. It contours us into Jesus' image. Because our singing is an expression of our prayers. In Acts chapter 4, when the early church gathered together, it says that they lifted their voices together to God. Acts 4 verse 24. Their singing was a prayer. And the songs that we sing are prayers. They are theologically rich. They are singable. They are opportunities for us to lift our voices as a single flame in prayer to God. So consider the singing not as ancillary or just as a part of worship, but consider that the volume with which we sing is a way that we intentionalize our liturgies in this church. Are you with me? Singing is one way, and singing loudly is one way that we intentionalize our liturgies. What's the second way you see in this passage? by stewarding our resources wisely you sing loud and you steward wisely notice that they offered sacrifices that day and rejoiced verse 43 44 on that day along with singing men were appointed over storerooms and the contributions and the first fruits and the tithes people gave financially they they gave not only was singing an expression of them trying to intentionalize liturgy and in embodying Thanksgiving, but also they gave of their resources. In the Old Testament, there was a tithe to give 10% of your first fruits to the Levites to provide for them and to help the worship of God's people flourish. And today, it's, the tithe is no longer binding on us. It is considered a minimum as those who've been saved by Christ. And so we are to tithe with joy. We are to give joyfully, We are to give in a way that hurts. We are to give in a way that deepens our faith, that embodies our gratitude, as if to say, Lord, it is yours. You've called me to steward this. This isn't, this is not mine. And I don't know why you've given me this much or this little, but it's still yours. And we embody our liturgies in the way that we give. I remember one of you, Told me the story of how their father, back in the day when we used paper checks, do you remember those things, paper checks, that they would give to, uh, this father would give to his daughter the paper check of their family's tithe, and she remembers as a little girl going, whoa. And then she'd put it in the offering every year, and it was a lot of money to her. And now as an adult raising her children, do you know what she does? She joyfully gives. Why? Because of the tradition of her father and of her mother, helping her set the pace for what it meant to be able to give. Giving helps us embody, to intentionalize our liturgies. And our giving reveals in patterns over time our heart's disposition to God. There's a story that Spurgeon once told about a, um, a nobleman who saw a peasant bring a gift to the king. You've probably heard the story before. I might tell it anyway. He brought, this, he brought this gift to the king, and it was a carrot. And this, 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 this poor peasant gave this carrot. It was his best carrot, this biggest carrot of his garden. And he, he was so proud, and he brought, this, he brought this carrot to the king, and, and the king said, thank you. Thank you for your trust and your obedience and wanting to help the kingdom flourish. Now, in response of your sacrifice and gratitude, I want to give you this great acreage and land. And he was like, I don't deserve it. I know you don't deserve it, but I want to give it to you. And so the peasant took this acreage and land for himself, and this nobleman in the shadows sees this and goes, Huh, a carrot will get you that. So the nobleman brings his greatest horse, brings this beautiful quarter horse to the king, and the, the king takes the horse from the nobleman and says, Thank you very much for the horse. And just leads the horse out of the room. And the nobleman's like, And? And the king says, And what? You see, the peasant gave the carrot to me, but you gave the horse to yourself. And how many of us view the stewardship of our finances in the same way? And the truth is that we have embodied liturgies that perhaps put too much worship in stock in our financial security. And so therefore, when it comes to giving the Lord his tithes and our offerings, we say, what's in it for me? Three very quick things about liturgy that I just want to commend to you um, before we come to the meal. Number one, the point that Nehemiah 12 makes is that our liturgies, friends, are formative. They shape our hearts, they conform us, or they deform us into or from the image of Christ. Liturgies shape our imagination, when when we see when we see the musicians up here play, when we when we hear songs, when we see beauty, our imaginations are set on fire for a world that we haven't yet experienced. And these liturgies reform our imaginations, which is why so much of of when I was preparing for this sermon, there was one day in my office where I just started weeping at like, what are the real liturgies of my life that command my attention? And I thought about the fact that I have routines that take me to YouTube to watch certain things on YouTube, news events or certain shows or certain things. And I just think, how, not that there's anything wrong per se with YouTube, but man, I had just found myself to be captivated in ways that were slowly deforming me and that were in fact distracting me from better things to which I was called. Liturgies are formative, liturgies shape our imagination, and liturgies counter the secular liturgies of our time. You are Protestants, you protest, and every time you come to worship, you don't have a picket sign that you show, but you have a picket sign that you stand upon that says, We are standing against the theology of the world to proclaim the beauty of Christ week after week after week. What theology, Pastor Blake? Well, the doctrines that we hear that what is true for me may not be true for you. The doctrine of subjective truth that you children and that you are drinking up if you don't intentionalize your liturgies upon the work of Jesus. Or the doctrines that I determine my own identity regardless of societal expectations or constructs. This is the self-identity construction doctrine. Or... The skepticism doctrine that says all grand meta-narratives and stories of how the world is put together are suspect and are to be critically examined. Or cultural relativism that says all cultural practices should be respected as equally valid expressions of human diversity. Tell that to nations who are, who are attempted to be wiped out. Or the doctrine of pluralism, that multiple truths and perspectives can coexist and diversity should be embraced. Like these are the things that if you are living in the, our time and you don't intentionally push back on, you will begin to believe, and deeply so. Or the doctrine of experience, that my experiences shape my reality and my truth is based upon the lived experience of my life or the anti-essentialism doctrine that says that my identity is fluid and constantly evolving and that there is no essential or fixed nature to assign to individuals or to groups. Our liturgies as a Christian church are protests against the liturgies of the world to reaffirm our faith in Christ. Hallelujah. Let's embody them. Let's be a living embodiment of gratitude, not just this week, but every week. Let's intentionalize our liturgies as a community of faith in this church. Let's begin to examine our lives on the practices that we repeat and the patterns that we live out throughout the course of the week and how they are shaping us or conforming us or in some cases deforming us into, from or into Christ's image. And let us as a people with deep joy sing loud. And let us give and steward wisely as his people. Because we wait patiently for the Lord. And he inclines and he hears our cry. As Asaph led Israel of old. He lifts us up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. And he sets our feet upon a rock. And he puts a new song in our heart that many will see Many will see and hear. And our joy would be heard far away. Amen.